Welcome film industry professionals, movie aficionados, and aspiring filmmakers. This is the Cinema Pathway Podcast, brought to you by Paradoxical Films. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Join us on a journey behind the camera, and most importantly, beyond what we know about film and the craft of filmmaking. So sit tight, grab some popcorn and soda, and let's go ride on Cinema Pathway. Welcome listeners to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Brand. As I've mentioned probably once or twice before in the podcast, I'm a New Yorker. My heart will always be in New York, so whenever we have the opportunity to have a New Yorker as a guest, it just gives me that little bit of an extra smile. Our guest today, she is a filmmaker, she is a program director, she has been a mentor, a professor, She's worked in the film industry. She's worked in the advertising industry. She's directed. She's done casting and talent. In fact, I think it would be easier to find something she has not done than it would be to list everything she has done. My guest today, I am so pleased to welcome Joan Gringer. Joan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Ali. So, like I mentioned, you have extensive background. You, you know, mentor, professor, you know, especially working with the next generation of uh, up-and-coming filmmakers. You founded a fascinating program called Quiet on the Set that we're going to talk about a little bit. But, you know, before you got to that, as I mentioned, you're from New York. But where did this all start? Uh, growing up. I was uh, dyslexic, but they didn't know it then. They didn't have a word for it. So the word was dumb. And um, I couldn't finish college because it was all tests. They didn't understand why I was so verbally good in class or whatever. But uh, I couldn't stay. I had to leave. I was going to Hunter College. And I had to get to work. My father said, oh, you're home now. You have to work. But it was difficult at the time because I was a woman. I was a young woman. And women didn't do very much other than stay home or do secretarial work, which I couldn't do because I was dyslexic. I couldn't work with numbers and letters. So I had the opportunity, someone, I asked everyone I knew, and uh, I asked the opportunity to work at a production company. And in those days, everything was under one roof. The stage was there, the editorial was there, the music was there, the directors were there, producers were there, everybody was under one roof. So it was a good place for me to learn because it was Manhattan, everything was on a different floor. I would be able to visit and just keep my eyes and ears open. And the first job I had was to read invoices to make sure that set designer wasn't ordering extra wood for his house besides just the wood that's needed to build desks or whatever they were building for a set. So I had to look at every invoice to make sure the crew wasn't ordering for themselves and that they were in budget. So that was my first job. Okay, interesting. And so this was in New York. Yes. Around around what time period because we know things have changed over years I know personally you know New York I'm a huge fan of Mad Men uh, and that era and obviously things like that are, have changed have changed today but what's interesting about this industry is really that the processes the way things are made really hasn't changed much well it has yeah. and it's uh, it's I was a pioneer as a woman producer in advertising when I worked at the production company our clients were advertising agencies there was one woman or a couple of women that would come in and I said I want to do what she's doing. So I made the transition and started to work in advertising. I want that job because I knew production. I learned it enough. I worked at three or four production companies. I also worked on features, which I did not like um, because it takes forever. A commercial is like, boom, you see it in Mm -hmm. a week, whatever. It's edited, it's it's on the air, boom. I wanted to do that. And there were a couple of us that were pioneers, women pioneers as producers. What kind of work did you do on features? I was a production office coordinator, which is a very long title, but it was just basically organizing, working for the production coordinator. So whatever she or he needed, that was the one job that was a woman that they would have because anything to do with organization, they always had women do it. Um, So I worked on that. I worked on some very high end feature I started on and I just filled in wherever I was needed. And you mentioned, you know, being a trendsetter, you know, being a, uh, you know, a woman back, back in those days. I came across an interesting thread of conversation uh, recently where they were talking about the term scripty uh, for script supervisor. I've always, if 
refer to my script supervisors as scripty. It just occurred to me that it was just a generic nickname. And I only learned recently that scripty actually grew out of originally it was script girl that would do that job. Did you witness that? Have you seen a little bit of that evolution? <clears throat> There's a lot of slang words in the film industry. And that's what I always tell PAs, uh, production assistants, learn the slang. Because when someone needs something, you can't just look it up. You've got to get it immediately because that camera may be running or somebody may need something immediately. So you have to learn not only the terms of what's going on in set, but you also have to learn slang. There's a very funny one that everyone knows. It's called the martini. And if you don't know what a martini is, you'd be lost. When you first started looking at invoices, did you look at it and be like, what are C-47s? Well, it's not so much. Because everything is ordered on a set. It's just that I had a reference of what was in the budget and what was ordered. And and I had to sign for it. It was my very big responsibility at the beginning. I didn't. But once I learned what was needed, I would be the one to say, okay, you can order this now. Um, because I had reference from a budget and that was pre-computers. <laughs> I remember those days a little bit as well. Uh, the other interesting thing that, you know, we talk about commercials is, yes, this podcast, we talk about filmmaking, but we've also talked a lot, a lot about, about content creation. We've also talked a lot about storytelling and that whether it's a two-hour feature, a 10-minute short, a TikTok, or especially a commercial, you're still trying to tell a story that's in it. And yeah, I think from going back when, you know, television commercials started, things have changed. How would you approach that advertising commercial? from a storytelling standpoint? Well, storytelling is you have to tell a story, sell a product in 30 seconds and make it look fabulous. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of work in a very short period of time. Where a film is, well, we'll take 10 minutes out of here, we'll add a half hour there. I've worked with a lot of filmmakers that wanted to do commercials. They didn't get it. As mm -hmm. good as they were, they didn't understand, you know, pick up a half a second. They had no mm -hmm. idea what that meant to a voiceover or anybody. So it was a, you know, big transition. They didn't think so. Everybody's a filmmaker. Well, give me the definition of a filmmaker. Uh, to me, the guy who sweeps the floor is a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Because if that floor is dirty and I'm shooting and you see the floor, I can't use it. So everybody on set is a filmmaker. But people, I'm a filmmaker. What's a filmmaker? Well, I direct, I produce, I write, I cast, I, I'm an actor. And then I said, you're an actor. Because most actors say, well, they really want to act more than they want to do any other position, I find. Yeah, and we, we've had conversations on previous podcasts about, you know, what's, what's the definition of a filmmaker? And there really is none. Just like there's no blueprint that works for everybody, there's no clear path to get from A to B to C to D and onward. Well, there's a format when you shoot a film, when you do the scroll of the crew and everybody, there's an absolute format. And the director is the last person to be on that scroll. When you're doing the cast, the casting director, the you know, the main people, mm -hmm. what we call above the line and the la and people don't know that. So when I see a film and I look at the credits and it's wrong, I said, this is not a professional. It's interesting you do you say that because you know I had been doing you know films and I recently did a uh, TV pilot sitcom and the credits are different for TV. But the director, and, and it doesn't film. matter. It's always the last yep. when it's above the line. It's after the cast. It's a, and it's directed right. by when you see a film and someone says a film by so and so at the top. That has to be well-earned. And a lot of people don't know that. So they put their name on the top. Who are you? But it has to be well-earned to do that. But the director is the last. There, You have to, even though if you're non-union, follow union rules. Exactly. I was having a conversation with someone about that a day or two ago. Someone who's relatively new to the film industry explaining to them the union rules. Even, and it wasn't until I went back to film school that understood the whole, if a background actor or extra is given direction by a director, they're no longer background or, or extra. They're cast. They have to be directed by by a you know first or second AD or, or someone else. And there was a story that I read. Brad Pitt was an extra in a Charlie Sheen movie, which just think about that for a second. Brad Pitt, you know, the biggest star in the world back then when Charlie Sheen was, was the big deal. Uh, he was an extra back when he was playing a waiter in a scene. And uh, he tried to sneak a line in. I think he said, yeah, you know, can I get you anything else? And basically the second AD said, you ever try that again? I will effing fire you on the spot. And it's those little things that... Very important. Exactly. Also face. Face, yes. Face. A friend um, of mine just worked 50 people running towards the camera. She said, 
those are extras. We can't, I, you know, and to get money, you can't just like manufacture money when you're on a set, especially on a commercial. But it's things like that when you're dealing with people that are in another part of the industry, like, you know, legit stuff as opposed to commercial. There are so many different rules and regulations that they have no idea for. Yeah. And definitely, you know, certain states that are that are non-union states, they definitely try try to push the envelope with things. Even, uh, you know, I've seen, heard stories that even even in non-union where they come on as union signatories, down at, they still try to, when you I'll call it, a, break the rules. Okay. Yeah. When you have one signatory person, because mm-hmm. that's what I'm doing now, just one, you have to pay. They don't have to join the union, but you have to pay union rate mm-hmm. just one yeah because otherwise you will be fine lots of money and we don't have to go too far into this topic but definitely there's people that are going to try to get away with it there's people that are going to take advantage of the fact that not everybody knows that i think a lot of that has been remedied over the last 20 years because all the information that's out on the, on the internet but i'm sure going back before then where you had to have a hard copy of union regulations things like that i could just imagine the things that producers or companies tried to try to pull to underpay and take advantage. Yeah, but the difference is with social media, everybody wants to be a filmmaker. When we were doing it, it was a small group. We knew who we were. We knew the rules and regulations. Um, Today, everybody's asking everybody to work for free. We are not slaves. That's a big debate that I know goes on, especially with those that want to get into the industry. The, I guess the old guard is like, you know, you got to be a PA and you got to be willing to work for free and got to be willing to do that. And the younger general and although I, I tend to pick on millennials and, and that a little bit I will say this they are much I don't want to say smarter they know more they're a little bit te- they're definitely tech savvier they tech savvier there's tech a big difference a being big... creative and technical yep being tech savvier but I think they're more prepared to you know from being able to educate themselves whether on YouTube videos or just from since they were 12 years old they've been playing with an iPhone taking movies that I'd like to see a little bit of a breakaway from this mentality of you got to be a PA and get coffee for people for five years for free before No, I disagree. As a a mentor, I tell people to hire interns. You don't have to pay to interns, but they get school credit. Yes. So that's how you get the free. If you're going to hire somebody for free, hire your family, hire your friends. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing something professional and tell them, oh, I'll pay you later. No, when you do a film, the first people get money are the investors, not the actors or the crew. So you have to learn that. But you, you know, they like to think that everybody should work for free. And I totally disagree. We're not, no other industry do you ask people to work for free. Exactly. I say then you're asking for slavery. They get very upset with me, but think about it. If you want to work for free and get something on your reel, that's something different if you need that practice. But don't forget, if you have free people working on your set and somebody gets sick, so I'm not going, I didn't get paid. What do I, what do I care? What are you going to do? What if it's your sound person or your lead actor Mm -hmm. or anybody else that you didn't pay and say, we're going to feed you? What if they are? I don't feel well today. I'm decided not to come. What are you going to do? Right. It's it's definitely in non-hub areas, you know, outside of Atlanta, New York, LA areas, you know, like Florida for existence, where there's a large independent film community. I mean, I just, I see it on backstage. I see it on posting. It's like rarely do I see like pay being offered. It's usually we'll feed you, give you IMDb credit. IMDb credit. Where am I going to see it to find you on IMDb? Where are producers going to see this film? That credit doesn't mean anything because how am I know to ask for you if I'm not going to see what you're in? That's a great point. So speaking of, of credits and things that have done, you've obviously have had a long career. What are some of the either commercials or films that you worked in that really stand out as really good experiences? There's one project I did. I did the 21st anniversary of Vietnam. Oh, and wow. I did, yes, I did it with Vietnam veterans. It was the hardest, most heartfelt project I ever worked on because these were not actors. These were guys who talked about their tours and how they were involved and what their lives are now. And I couldn't turn anyone away. Everyone that I interviewed for casting, I had to use in the film. And it was more of a commercial. It was a PSA, public service announcement. So it was only 60 seconds long. But I would not turn away any of those guys. Plus, I had to be very careful on selecting a director Mm -hmm. because what their political stand was about the war. So I hired a Canadian director who was very good. So it was that was the most heartfelt and beautiful project I've ever worked on because these guys didn't know each other. And 
and uh, we had a session where they would get to know each other and I put a sound man in there and they continued to talk that this sound man had to be somewhere else and quietly left just one thing in there and he had to leave so they can continue their conversations because they were all talking about each one's tour. It was the most heartfelt and beautiful um, things I've ever worked on and the guys came to me. One guy hugged me. I thought he was going to break my ribs but I didn't let him tell him that and his wife came and pushed him away from me because she knew she saw my face but it was the most beautiful thing I've ever worked on okay so that 21st anniversary so it's probably around early early mid 90s 25 years ago it's now it's up to 50 okay and did you work with the what was it the Vietnam Veterans of America the VSO based in DC basically it was but it had a different name at the time that's when PTSD was coined no I appreciate you saying I'm, I'm a veteran my wife is a veteran I actually worked at a at the Department of Veterans Affairs. I work closely with veterans organizations like that. And I've seen, obviously, you know, the way different eras of veterans have been treated firsthand and the swings that have happened. And I'm very sensitive you know, along my wife and a lot of other veteran friends of just the veteran portrayal in films, something I'm passionate about. And I, it's either crazy, the crazy veteran who's going to, you know, do this or they're the super soldier, the Rambo commander or both. And um, I joke that the most accurate representation of a veteran in a movie I've ever seen is the movie Cocktail with Tom Cruise. Because at the beginning, he's getting out of the army. He just gets out. He goes to New York thinking he's going to go to school, you know, get a business degree, go and make millions, realize that doesn't happen starts bartending eventually you know marries the girl and opens up a bar that's that's more like veterans than uh than what you see so it's, well uh, i had a situation that uh one of the guys bought his friend it was a very close situation interviewing each guy and i said to his friend oh are you a veteran he said yes i said would you like to be interviewed oh no 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 i hardly did anything in the war you don't want to interview me i said well we can interview if you don't want it. We won't use it, but you can come. Your friend will come. He will interview. And you can go, well, no, 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 I didn't do anything. I said, well, what did you? This is off camera. What did you do? He said, oh, I just, you know, had all these big bags we would take on and off the truck. They were body bags. So I was, whoa. But yeah, so I put him on film, but he was just, oh, I did nothing. It was just, he was a tall, skinny guy. I'll never forget that, but he was... Oh, you don't want me. I didn't do anything. I said, oh, yeah. It's very interesting. And, and like I said, again, I, I appreciate appreciate you doing that. Um, you're going to have to send me a link so I can watch that and share that with... I have a lot of friends who are, who are Vietnam veterans from that era um, that I'm sure would love to see that. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will transition from talking about all the great things Joan has done in her long career to what she is doing today. Uh, this is the Cinema Pathway Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Brand. We'll be right back. And we are back. Today, I am joined by filmmaker, producer, I think storyteller is is the catch-all that that we've we've settled on, Joan Gringer. Joan, one of your other titles is you are the program director of an organization called Quiet on the Set. Uh, This is an organization that you co-founded, that you still run, uh, something you're very passionate about. We talked a little bit about this earlier uh, and how important it is to really help train the next generation of uh, not just filmmakers, but commercial makers, content creators. Uh, So take me back to the beginning. How did this all start when i came to uh, florida uh, one of the first positions i had was working for a new york company that dealt with advertising there was nobody or no company knew what i did or knew how what i did so i had to work for this new york company and then 9 11 happened i was only here for a few months so they closed basically closed down or things didn't work out i was the last one there the first one to leave so i had to reinvent myself and uh, somebody said that they had a program to teach children film production would i lecture for them. And I had lectured at UCLA uh, for advertising, production for advertising. So I knew a bit about lecturing. So I said yes. And it was, but this time it was for high school students, not for college. So I taught all around Miami area, Miami-Dade area, and um, the kids would actually make a film. So I would take them from the actual story that they would write. I did not write. They did everything. I was just the mentor. And I loved it. It was like a whole different 
getting the response from the children. Um, and they were very diversified from every Latin, black, poor, white, everybody was all inclusive because it wasn't a neighborhood I didn't teach in. So when I saw what was missing, because the school was not run by filmmakers, they were run by educators. So I decided that I would be able to do my own school. And I wrote a program of what I knew and how it should be done and what the kids needed to learn besides just storytelling or just deciding what is what we call above the line, that they had to learn all the positions in the film. So I put down a program for that and I was the program director, but I don't call myself a filmmaker, a DP, I'm a producer. That's it. It's the only title I'll go by. So that's that's my comfort zone. So when you started this, you mentioned it was it was shortly after after 9-11. Were you still working with film or was this early digital? No, it was helping advertising agencies with commercials if they needed information about a certain character, if they needed uh, uh, mock-up storyboards on what they were working on for their presentations, which I'm sure if you watched Mad Men, you mm-hmm. saw all those presentations. Right. I used to be involved in those presentations physically and then years later because it's a visual industry. So you have to show visuals when you're in a visual industry. Note, I'm going to ask that question again and and rephrase it. When you were working with the high school students and you said they they would write and and make these films, was that still working with film or was that, you know, starting to work with digital? At the first day of class, I would bring in film and I would say almost like eat it, understand (laughs) what it is. I would bring in film and they would pass it around the class. I would bring in negative. I'd bring in positive just in a film can. And that was one of my first lessons I would teach is this is film. What it becomes later on is something else, but you have to know where it comes from. And then I would also, first assignment was when they watched the movie to read every credit. You've seen that evolution really, I guess, over over 20 years, you know, from film into digital. And, you know, we talk about credits. We talk about credits and, you know, mainly, you know, talk about Hollywood features, you know, big feature films, just the number of crew members on a set below the line that aren't even above the line, but really below the line, just how that has grown exponentially. And it's, uh, you know, you hear a lot of arguments, oh, everything's, you know, CGI and effects. Yes, but look at all the jobs that's created and look at all the opportunities that's created. And you mentioned, you know, you work with a lot, a lot of minorities. I think with the digital filtering down, even to phones, um, it's become more democratized. Like, like people have more opportunities to like, even on their own on that. Do you see that? Have you seen more opportunities open up for people that probably 30 years ago wouldn't have had those oh, opportunities? Absolutely. With all the digital, I mean, um, even in the early days of Star Wars, if you look at the credits, how many people worked on it, people are getting credit now that we didn't have, people didn't get mm-hmm. credit for before. You never saw a line for an accountant before on the credits. Right. Today, everybody gets a credit on the film. And it's also, those days was uh, a way of negotiation. You will get a credit and you'll get paid this instead of no credit, you get paid mm-hmm. more money. So that was a negotiating part. Um, but in today's world, like kids, when I work with kids and um, some of the films that they were watching, I would ask them to say, what film did they love? And they would say a certain, of course, a film that had CGI. And I would say 3,000 people worked on that film. And they'd look at me and I said, yes. And that doesn't include the actors, but there were 3,000 people. Because when you do a CGI film, somebody works on the water, somebody works on the images. They're all farmed out to different CGI companies. And that's how it's done. Because otherwise it would take 20 years to make it if it was only one company. So when I make the children aware of all the opportunities, I have them read about it or I have them pick on a name on the credits and what they did and then look up their name and see what else they've worked on and what they've done and how their position has grown from where they started to where they are today. And the other thing, and I think, this uh, this will make sense to you, you know, as a producer. You know, you said you define yourself really as a producer, so I stand corrected. That at the beginning, you know, producer. Um, I worked as a project manager, managing teams. When I see these credits of thousands of thousands of, of people, the thing that goes off in my mind is kudos to the EP, the producers who were able to manage this giant team spread out 
across globally now and pull it all together to make this film. And I think that's that doesn't get taught as much as that's something you almost have to learn being in, you know, you can learn some theory, but you really have to learn how to manage people, manage pieces, be a conductor, not a, not a violin player. Most EPs don't know film. They're money people. Mm -hmm. They invested, so they have to learn as well. They make a large amount of money, so therefore they decide on what color cast should wear or what the theme would be, or they work with the director. But they are not film people. Most of them are not film people. They become film people later on, but their main project is writing checks. So as, you know, really to educate our, our listeners, as you look at the list of producers, and there's some movies, there's 20, uh, number them, is it easy to try to figure out, or it's really not easy to try to figure out, where that break is like these are just the money people this is the person who is actually like i guess the connective tissue between the money and the creative side that's on it whether that's the line producer or the producer well in it like in any business there's always politics so each film is different and each amount of money is different and you can always have someone say well i gave you a million dollars i want to know i'll decide on who the character should be played by well who are you you know other than a paycheck. But then there are some that are in the film industry that become executive producers who know how to control. Not that these other people don't because they control a bank, let's say, or they control another business and they all, everybody wants to be in the film industry. So they're learning by osmosis in a way, um, but they, you know, some are, are very adapting and some are not. It all depends on who and what and what their, you know, leeway is because they may say, I'll give a million dollars only if. And sometimes people say, bye, no yeah. only ifs. You want to be involved? You can be involved. We will give you your money back plus whatever interest or whatever the, how many eyes fall see this film and you will get your money plus interest, whatever deal you make. Every mm -hmm. deal is different. I mean, if you watch a film, look how many uh, production companies are mm -hmm. involved. The beginning of the the film before you see the first frame mm -hmm. of a film you will see five or six production companies involved in one mm -hmm. film even if it's an indie it doesn't have to be a big blastbuster film probably more so in indies because they have to get you know well, funding from different places this production name right. mrs a right. you know so they'll say we we want a credit and they get credit because they brought in their funders to be part of producing and they get the title there are some people who give money don't want a title they just like here's the money and that's it just, get yeah, just yeah. do a good give, job give me give my me return and give me my return yeah. so it's all as i said it's a lot of politics involved and speaking of politics uh, as it relates to films you know i've i've been a first ad second ad on on indies a couple of indie features and one of the challenges i have experienced is when the director is also like the producer ep is like self-funding so when you try to rein the director in and say, you know, we can't do that, we'll go off schedule, you know, this and that, they're like, oh, it doesn't matter, it's my money. Anyway, does that also exist at in big features when like big name ex-director is also the executive producer well, that they're just going to really do what they want because if they go over budget, it's coming out of their pocket anyway. So they're just... Well, everything is done pre. Everything, the storyboard, everything is mapped out. So it doesn't matter who's directing and who's producing and who's giving the money. It's mapped out. And when it's mapped out, the money is allocated to what has to be done. It is a very tough job for a director to be a producer and then be in front of the camera. Some of them are actors. That makes their job threefold. It's a very difficult job. And and they can say, I want to do this, but they don't do it on set. They show it in storyboards. They, and if there is a change on set, it's not like I'm doing it. You have to present because you're not the only person giving all the money. So you have to let them know, oh, we changed the character's tone or we changed uh, another person to we bump them up from extra to being a part of the film, whatever it might be. Any depends how small or large the difference is. But if they are the director and they're putting in their money in, they pretty much have the call. Most directors do, even if they don't put the money in, mm -hmm. because otherwise they won't take the project. And speaking of crew sizes, going back to the difference between films and commercials, you know, obviously I'm sure commercials are much smaller crews. Are there any positions that exist, you know, specifically for commercials that don't exist on films? Are there different versions 
of those positions or basically treated just like, like a mini it's film? It's a mini 30-second, 15-second film. All the positions are the same. Uh, the only difference is, is you have more clients because you're selling a product mm-hmm. a product or a service. You have to make it look fabulous and you have to cut, it has to come off the shelves. With a movie, a movie's on the shelf for a weekend, two weekends, right. three weekends. Mm-hmm. A product is always on the shelf. You will always see a bottle of whatever soda you're selling right. or beer. They right. will always be on the shelf. Is it a common problem of the client? Yes, you know, they have final say. They tell you what they want, but like not letting the director, not letting the creative team making a commercial really do their job. There's a lot of instances of that happening. Unfortunately, everybody thinks they're creative. They're not. But you still, as the creative side, have to be very political in some cases. You have to speak with a fine tooth comb of what you're saying to these people because they're the ones who are funding the money and they're the ones who are the product or the service. So you have to make it that they are involved in it some way, shape, or form. There is a person on set called an account executive. All this was done in Mad Men. You'll Mm -hmm. see that. Um, who is the go-between, the creatives and the client. And that is their job. You know, they will come say, oh, the client wants her to wear a red dress. Oh, the DP says red won't go in that scene. It's, you know, blasting my light. Whatever the reason. So it's production 101 that we have to explain it to them, but not lose time while we're on set and shooting. So I want to bring it back to your organization, Quiet on the Set. Um, currently, what what is the typical day like for that? Or what is the typical okay. session or week the like? Client on the set is, I'll give you a typical class that I had. Um, they were run by a church. So there were kids from all different places that go to this church. And the church has this, you know, children's program. And they were convinced to do a film program. So we would have a character. I would have the kids ask about a character. How old? Man, woman, child, girl, boy. And the kids would pick. So we would build a kill. Where does the child live? What colors do they like? What do they wear? Where do they go to school? All one person, as I tell people, characters aren't born on page 16. So they have to start, who are their parents? Do they have aunts and uncles? Do they have cousins? All one character. And then we choose another character. And then we make a story. Are they brother and sister? Are they brothers? Uh, are they good friends? Do they play with their friends? So now we have two characters. What do you want to tell us about these characters? Do they have a story to tell? And then we get into story. Where do they live? Do they live in a house? Do they live in an apartment? Do they live in the projects? You know, uh, is one gay? Is he, uh, you know, trans? Everything you could possibly think of to teach these kids about a character. Then once the story is planned, then I bring in all the different positions on a set the director, the producer, the grip, the gaffer, everybody. And then I have the kids decide what do they want to be on this set. And when it comes to a director or DP or a story, like we pick three or four groups of kids decide to be the script writers, they take the basis of the story and then they write a script with a script person that helps them. And then the kids decide, I have three groups and the kids decide, which story they want to tell. They vote on it, but not secret vote because they don't, I don't want them to vote for their friend. I want them to vote for what they like. So they vote on that. And then the director has to present how he or she wants to make this film. And again, we have three people that say, this is how I see the film. This is how I want to direct it. And then again, the kids have to decide secret ballot, which director they want. So those are the positions that we start with. And then the kids decide which position. And I try to get the crew members to come in and help the kids when they have it. So one wants to be a location director. We teach them what to say, where to go, uh, props. They get props. They get everything. And then eventually we make the film in like two days. We get the camera work and the kids do it themselves. I wrote nothing. They do it all themselves. I'm just there for questions and whatever and each kid participate that's great i i love that and the thing that jumped out to me is when you talk about the beginning is it's really teaching the art 
of storytelling. You know, you don't just pick up a camera and start filming someone. Even that, I'm a uh, I'm a big Michael Mann fan, and Michael Mann is well known, especially for Heat. He wrote complete detailed biographies and gave them to all the main characters. Things ninety nine percent of which didn't appear in the film, but just when you start thinking about all these little things. Um, you know, I character bios, even for, for small films that, that I've worked on, you know, you have a four or five page character bio and just a little thing that, you know, they wear this necklace because of some reason it may not even be spoken about in there, but that's why. And it's really, um, it's just such a great exercise. Well, it's also, for instance, the person doesn't say I like baseball, but in one of the rooms you see baseball pictures. He doesn't have to say it, but that's one of the things I teach the prop people. It's like, what do you know about this character? Well, he likes baseball, but we don't talk about him liking baseball. I said, so put up pictures of baseball or trophies or whatever this character played, or maybe he just liked it or a fan or whatever it is to show, to build that character. Yeah. The last, uh, one of my recent films, the main character um, had French ancestry, you know, and we developed her bio together. Didn't say it. It didn't really come up. But uh, she wore a beret yeah. in that. It also went along with her character because she was playing a uh, pretentious, over-the-top, artsy student filmmaker. So that that type of stuff. And then once you know they've completed the film that they make, do they put it on? Is there a place for you know people outside the organization to see it? Did they just well, do it for themselves? Should, at the time, we showed it to their parents and their friends. You know, we had a screening room. And we showed it to the teachers, whoever, mentors, whatever, to come in and watch it. We tried to enter them into uh, film festivals that had children categories, things like that. Um, If they wanted, they they all had to vote on everything. Mm -hmm. This was not my decision. I wanted them involved in every aspect of it and what has to be done and how much each person is involved doing it. So when they would come and say, well, can I do this? I said, you could do whatever you want. Just present it and see if it, if the rest of the team, I taught them teamwork. We, I said, in film, we call them departments. But in your you know, age group, we call them teams. I said, that's why when you see a set and you see guys and girls hanging around, well, why are they hanging around? They're waiting their turn as a team member. I said, some teams go in, then they leave. The last team to get on a set are the actors. So that presented to show how things are broken up. And about on average, how large are these groups? Yeah, I try to keep it from 25 down. That's what I tried to do is to have 25 kids. Yeah, I think it was okay. 25 kids. And how often does a, you know, is this something that happens every week? Well, this was all pre-COVID. Okay. You know, during, it was very hard because a lot of schools don't have the money. It wasn't costly, but it was something very new to them. So they weren't open to it. They didn't get it. Or they didn't understand. Um, it's not college, but it's a trade. And it's also creative. And the kids listen to people with passion. So they understand it better when someone speaks about their passion rather than just their job it's very invigorating and they become more involved you mentioned this started before covid have any of your prior students i'm sure many have um gone out to film school do you keep in touch follow up and try to follow their careers it's up to them i send them um an exit poll of what they like about it, what they didn't like about it. There were a lot of children that were uh, have a very sweet story about a guy who was gay and uh, would dress like a female and the kids hated him. And he gave him the job of being the makeup and he did wardrobe and he was very good at it. Well, by the end of the shoot, the kid, he came to me crying and he was a big kid and hugging me and I, well, what's wrong? I thought something happened. He said, the kids are coming to me asking me for advice. He never had that in his life. Should I wear this green top? Should I? He said, I planned everything. And after a while, the kids just kept coming to me and asking me about what they think would would look good on camera. And he said, I finally learned their names or they learned my name. It was worth every penny. Uh, I could imagine. Great moment. Great stories. I mean, it's really excited to hear about, you know, again, it's a cliche. Children are the future. Definitely training them, especially, you know, we talked a little bit off mic challenges in the workforce facing, you know, the next generations. You know, the film industry has always been challenging and and, probably going to get more 
more so. Uh, we're going to continue talking about all this. We're going to take another quick break. But before that, we would like to thank two of our partners that helped make this podcast possible. Cinevideotech, who's been a mainstay of the film industry since 1968, providing equipment, support, and training. And ComTV, who offers consulting and production services for a wide range of entertainment. This is Howard Brand. You're listening to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We'll be right back. And we are back with Joan Gringer. Joan, we've talked about your career, your experiences. You've obviously met a lot of people. Is there anyone who stands out to you that you would consider a mentor or someone who gave you your advice that you still think about today? Someone who you really looked up to and inspired you? Well, I've worked with a lot of famous people, but I used to call that adult babysitting. Um, I always wanted to be a DP. I was very, uh, very um Amorous, is that the right word? Uh, but I have uh, depth of field problems with my eyesight, so I couldn't do it, plus I was a woman. So it was really difficult. But many years ago, I met Vilmos Zygmunt. He did a project for me, and he would explain everything. And I, at the time, I had my stepson with me. He was about 11, 12 years old, and he still remembers it. He's now in his 40s, and he still remembers being on set with me and how much Vilmos explained to him because he was an artist and he said he still remembers all the things he told him when he was 12. So that was very, very good moment for me. That's great. And as a mentor, you give advice and you help these young students, whether they've continued in film or not, do, do any of them still reach out to you for advice or still just keep in touch, you know, say, hey, think about doing this. What do you think? Unfortunately, a lot of people I work for are now deceased. <laughs> so that's not going to happen. Um, no, it was the project. It was so invigorating when I worked on it and it was invigorating when it was over. So, uh, no, I don't. Uh, and I started in New York and then I went to LA and now I'm in Florida. So it was really hard. There was nothing, it was all professional. So there was no friendships other than when we were together because there were a lot of time spent together when you're working on a project, especially if it's a, a campaign where it's more than one commercial. So no, when I left, it was thank you and bye. I'm going to rephrase that question again. Thinking back to your work with Quiet on the Set when you've worked with, you know, kids and students, we talked about some of them pursue careers in film, some of them go elsewhere. Um, do any of your former students still, you know, reach out to you for advice, whether in this industry or out of? I had one student that reached out to me and I helped him do a reel for himself many years ago. But don't forget, these kids are very young. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are uh, 12, 13, 14. The older ones didn't grasp it as well, or if they did, it's not necessary that they became filmmakers, but what they did learn was teamwork, and they learned to work with others. They learned a lot about respect. Those are the things that was taught on set. The respect of a director is called Sir, and I had all the students, the kid, the child that they picked as director to call him or her Sir or Ma'am. So all those things they take with them, and it doesn't necessarily have to be fulfilled. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Listen. I always say if you keep your eyes and ears open and your mouth shut and use common sense, that'll usually get you 90% of the way in, in most jobs. Well, my first experience in a commercial was to listen. I was working with a director. There was another director came in and did some a lot of footage in Malibu. I was in New York and he came back with the footage. This is all 35 millimeter. So it's run on a projector. And I was invited to sit in the room to watch the raw footage. And I was always quiet. I would watch it and watch it. And it was for, at the time, I'll never forget this, Wrigley Gum. And one of the directors, not the director of the film, but the director who invited me into the screening said, Joan, what do you think? And I said, what? You know, I have to speak now. And it was scenery of Malibu with horses riding in the water and the beautiful uh, views and, you know, and beautiful people and the flowing of whatever they're wearing. And all I said was, where's the gum? And they had to reshoot or not reshoot, but add stuff. Mm -hmm. That's all I said. Where's the gum? Sometimes the freshest eyes on something are the best. 
I know when I've been sitting there editing something for weeks on end and just to bring in, you know, another you know, set of eyes, another set of eyes to look at it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, definitely. Or make it, you know, especially, you know, if you're making pitch decks stuff and, and it's also, you get very personally attached to your work that sometimes you lose perspective. Absolutely. Stuff. And you're so, you're so dedicated. So on, on that, what advice would you give? to, let's say, a, a teenager, let's say a sophomore, junior in high school who wants to, thinking about pursuing a career, we'll call it filmmaking, but broader, you know, filmmaking, content creation, advertising, you know, doing commercial, like, like making visual art that you see. What what would you tell them? Well, when they watch a movie or a TV show or a series, there's something that they like about it, whether it's usually the actor because they don't know any difference, but that's when I tell them to look at the credits and see that they liked a dress that one of the performers wore. Well, the performer did not pick that dress. Find out who did. Find out what that other person worked on and what they did for their other films, what kind of clothing they made. Uh, Directors, when you do history, you have to research a lot of what they're wearing, how, how they wear it, what time of day they wear certain things. Then there's the present, which you have to be aware of everything around you to see what's happening now. And the future, you do what you want. And, you know, you you speak of authenticity, you know, especially in period pieces. We've talked about Mad Men a couple of times. Mad Men, among many things, was known for its adherence to authenticity of that era. I think maybe over the seven seasons, there was one, maybe two things that were picked out. Oh, you know, that model couch didn't come out for a year later or this and that, but just the detail and the research that goes into that. It makes sense. And again, I bring it back to uh, you know myself being a veteran in the military when my wife and I, you know, if we watch a movie, the uniform is wrong, or especially um, I mentioned on episode a couple uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, the Army and the Marine Corps, for example, the same rank are dressed differently. In the Army, Staff Sergeant or Sergeant First Class, you know, an E6 or an E7 are just called Sergeant. We call that. In the Marine Corps, a Staff Sergeant is a Staff Sergeant, and E7, you know, is a gunnery sergeant or gunny, you call one of them sergeant, you're going to be in dirt for a while. So just like these little differences to just put some research, just it adds to credibility. The pin, put it on the right, correct side. You have to know every detail. You take lots of pictures. You must read you all the detail. I worked on the Army account many years ago. It was when I went to their floor, I felt like I was in a different world. But speak only when spoken to, if they were asked. You have to, every detail, every collar, how it's worn, every button, everything. Because they're going to get letters and emails today from people like you. And that's what they did not want. When you worked with the Army, did you work with? The Army at the Pentagon? Did you work with their marketing offices? They had marketing offices in New York. York, Yeah, New York, Chicago, and LA. They had their own floor and everybody was, I had to learn everybody's title when I went up there. It was, I felt like I just went one floor up. I felt like I was in another world. When was that? The 1970s. Oh, wow. That was, you know, the time of the, uh, that was an interesting time. That was a time of the be all you can be thing. And also when they started shifting heavily to the, the Garden Reserve with, you know, one week in a month. Know, two weeks a year. We I could talk about that all day, but let's stay on topic. As you've seen, you know, you mentioned you've lectured at UCLA. You've been involved, you know, as a professor um, in other institutions. We mentioned film school. You know, it talks about filmmaking. Do you think institutions of higher learning, you know, whether it's community college or you know, four-year college, public or private, do you think that they're too narrow focused on just making films and movies that they're leaving out commercials and different kinds of content or are they starting to teach all forms of content creation? Well, the only way I know that is from the students themselves because I've never taken classes. I am not a professor. I was more of considered a mentor. Uh, this interns that I spoke to, what do you learn and what are your classes like what what and they would talk about um about design they would talk about history they would talk about what about being on a set you know do you do you actually go on sets or they would get the equipment and i said well where would you get the equipment from today the school there's like just in winter park in in florida is a supposedly a very good school that they teach you every aspect of filmmaking because in order to be a storyteller, you could be a great storyteller, but then 
to take it from the storyteller to the screen is a whole other way. Execution. Execution. They have to learn that. And sometimes when that's why you have a writer of a novel and a script writer, two different. Very different. Because the novelist can't write a script and the script writer basically can't write the novel. So that is why you have those two, because the dialogue is different. You develop in a script, you develop more of a character than you do in the novel. And it's interesting you say that, just to bring a little personal note, when I, for as long as I can remember, you know, whenever I read read a novel, I would always read it, picturing it as, you know, a story on screen, picturing it as a film, picturing who these characters are. And I just assumed everybody does that. And not a lot of people do. And that really was my first for, I mean, I started my, my first attempt at a screenplay was when I was in high oh. school in the early nineties, you know, we had a screenplay book in a library and I took it out and, you know. Well, reason for that or whatever is if you start picking it apart, it's not a good novel. If you start looking at a movie and see different things about it and not paying attention mm-hmm. to the story and what's going on, it's not a good film. You have to be totally engrossed in what, in this case, they're selling you, the storyline and the characters and the things that happen. If you start nitpicking and see things, then you're not paying attention. And it's interesting you say that. One of the running uh, kind of themes we've had on a podcast this season actually started the first episode of conversation between me and our director, Victor, about sacrificing story for spectacle. And I think even when you talk about your experience with Wrigley, the story was about the gum, but they sacrificed that to make this spec, you know, this visual thing. Do you like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, when I do a commercial, no matter what it is, whether it's a service or a product or whether it's a glamour or grunge, as we say, that has to sell. You have to go, you have to go in the store and say, oh, I saw that in uh, in Walgreens or in uh, Walmart or whatever. I want to try that. That's what they're looking for. That's the marketing. When you're in advertising and you're doing film, you have to understand marketing, which they don't yeah, do today. Exactly. Just because you have a great idea, it doesn't mean that it's uh, going to be a marketable movie. It's, it's show cliche, it but it's it's show business well, when it comes down to it. Right. And it has to come off the shelf. Before we close out the segment, one very important question. Do you have a favorite film? Do you have a favorite commercial or story? All time favorite? No, I don't have a favorite film because I watch each individual film individually and uh, it's important to me. I love good storytelling. I do watch some CGI, but I look at it for the story because in how the CGI contributes to the story. Uh, again, as I said, I like to be involved in the film, not into the filmmaking. So I don't have a favorite, um, but there are many that I love. I don't have a favorite actor. I don't have a favorite director. I just look at their work and see what else they've done. If I like something, then I will look at the director to see what else that director has done before. The same thing with the actor or anybody else mm-hmm. on the DP was always my my soft spot because that's what I wanted to do. So I'd always look at the work and look at the lighting to me was so crucial. It's funny. I give almost the same exact answer when I get asked a question. It's your favorite movie. One, I mean, it depends on the day of the week. You ask me one day, it's Blazing Saddles. You ask me another day, what mood I, you know, it's it's Godfather. You ask me another day, it's Slapshot. You know, another day, Kentucky Fried Movie, uh, <laughs> d- depending on that. But yeah, just uh, we could talk all day about. Well, well, as a filmmaker, people become snobs. Yes. So you got to be really careful yeah. about that. Yeah. I've, I've said when, you know, especially today when it's costing 50 bucks to go to a movie, if you buy, you know, your ticket and popcorn, you know, what? I'm paying that money. I want to be entertained. For two hours. That's what it is. I'm not looking for a movie to change my life. You know, if it does, it's a bonus or whatever. You know, I'm not looking for fact. If I wanted that, I'll watch a documentary. And there's a difference between fact and reality and authenticity that I think is is important to be authentic. You know, even if you're telling fiction. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, going back to the early days, it's for entertainment, for the consumer, for the producer to make money. It's a product. It's a profit. And it's also to bring out emotion, whether it's happy or sad or, uh, you know, life-changing for yourself or something that you could recognize yourself in the film. They're looking for that because then they know you'll talk about it. That's the best marketing you could do. And tell your friends, I saw this movie, boy, it really hit me, reminded me of whatever it reminded my mother, my father, my situation that I've been through in my life. So therefore, it gives that person the incentive to go see it. Great stuff. We're going to take one more quick break and we'll be right back to conclude this episode. To our listeners, if you enjoy listening to our podcast, 
please support us by subscribing to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform and then head over to our online store at paradoxicalfilms.com forward slash shop where you can purchase Cinema Pathway gear, including t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. We'll be right back. back. I'm Howard Brand. This is the Cinema Pathway Podcast with our guest today, Joan Gringer. Joan, we talked about your great experiences, shared a lot. I've learned a lot uh, from listening to you. You have great perspectives on things. Uh, you know, we also mentioned the present. So let's talk about the present. What do you do today? Today, I work for a company called Team, which is a division of casting crew. And what I do for them is I'm an on-set talent representative producer. Couldn't be any longer. But what that person does is if you are a production company or an advertising agency and you are not signatory to SAG, but you will be using SAG performers, you must have a third party unless you become signatory. So you must have a third party that's signatory and that would be team. And what that does is they make sure all the rules and regulations for your talent that's signatory is abided by on set. So you don't have to worry about it, but they come in, it's called third party signatory. So that's what they do. They do the budgets for you because when you have talent, you have to know what the royalties are, what the commercial is, if it's regional, if it's national, all those things come together for talent. And this is the company they hire and I'm physically on set to make sure that the rules and regulations are abided by and that the talent, if there is a mishap, they don't call SAG because then you get an enormous fine. So if they come to me or if I see something that's not taken care of, I will bring it to the attention of the agency or the production company to let them know to take care of it and to make sure that person talent is doing what they need to do and what they want. So you don't want a fine because SAG can find you whatever they feel that day. Yeah, and uh, do you work basically locally, regionally, across the country? Well, because of COVID, and there are a lot of COVID rules now that you have to abide by, especially with the talent. Um, for instance, not only do you have to take, you can't take a home test. You must take a test two days before the shoot. Sometimes the last shoot I was on, they actually had a van with nurses there that took a test when you were there. They're very, very strict about that. And so is production. So is uh, most production companies, um, IATSE, which is the union, very strict mm-hmm. about it. So um, that's basically what I have to do now. Unfortunately, now I have to watch it. It's virtual because they try to cut down the number of people on set. So I have to watch everything that's going on. Hopefully they have me in the right place at the right time because I can't speak because they're on sound. And I don't know because I only have one angle mm-hmm. to see it from. That's very interesting. And something else you mentioned, um, how you're you're still working in the industry, but it's almost filmmaking adjacent, I'd say. And I think a lot of you know people that want to work in the industry are so focused on working in the actual film making part that sometimes they overlook other opportunities. Um, I know someone who, who's you know VP of HR at a large streaming network. She's like, you know, I studied film in school and all that. I never thought I'd end up in HR, but you know, I'm working for you know major streamers, so I'm still in it. Is that something that you know aspiring filmmakers or people that want to work in this industry should definitely be aware of, keep their eyes open for? Are there ways to get into that kind of work? Well, I always ask people, what is your passion? You know, when people say to me, I want to do this, this, and this, and I say, you know, I want to be director, producer, or an actor, or writer. What is your passion? And then what your passion is, there is a position for that. There are many more positions in that industry Mm -hmm. than there ever were before. So, for instance, streaming. How old is streaming? You know, so anything like that. And then you, as I say, you listen and you watch and see. And then it's like I did. I saw a woman come in. She was a woman and man. They were producer of an agency. And I saw what they were doing. And I went, I want to do that. I didn't know about it before that. So you learn, and once you learn, then you could decide which area you want to be in, but make sure you know it, and you know it really well. Going back 
to the uh, the work you do. You mentioned a minute ago, and I know we, we've talked about it a couple of times on this podcast, uh, a union signatory. Can you explain a little bit more about what exactly that means? Well, every union has their own rules and regulations and a payment schedule. So those are the things you have to abide by. For instance, a talent union person uh, works for an eight-hour day. They don't get five hours. They still get paid for eight hours. And anything above there is time, time and a half, plus all the increments that they get if there's a scene that they're in water, they get paid extra for that. If there's scene that they change clothes, everything is different with a different payment attachment. They must be paid for it. You don't want a talent person to call their union, in this case SAG-AFTRA, to say, I didn't get or I'm not happy because of, because then as a company, you get fined by SAG. The same thing with um, with crew unions. So therefore, that, that has to be by their rules and regulations. There are websites. There are everything to explain to you. And especially today, there are COVID rules that are very strict for everyone on set, not just talent, but the crew. Everybody has a specific rule and you must abide by it no matter what state you're in. Can a SAG actor, let's say they have a friend who's producing a, we'll call it a lower, no budget, you know, little indie. Um, The friend doesn't have the money to pay anyone, including the actor. Can the SAG actor kind of like waive their right? Are they allowed to act in that? No. Unless, even if they call the union, the union will not be pleased. They do not want you to work on non-union stuff unless it becomes a union. In other words, you could work non-union, but you have to sign documents. So let's say you're doing an indie film, but you do have money, but not enough to pay SAG. Then it becomes a union film because you release it in certain places then you repay them whatever the difference is. But on a whole, no union likes you to work non-union. Right. I, I mean, that's across any industry. Uh, it's, it's interesting. And you know, to our listeners, if, if you want to learn more about both, these are the big ones, SAG, SAG-AFTRA, and, and IOXI, but there's also other unions I highly recommend going to their websites, really learning and understanding the more you know before you enter the industry, especially before you go to work on set and know what you should be getting, know what you should be entitled to on there. It's important to know, arm, arm yourself with information. Well, there's also on a lot of these unions, they have programs to teach you if you want to become any of the positions, not just actors, but IATSE has programs. Every state has a different program. Mm-hmm. They have webinars and then you have to accumulate hours to get into the union, but there are programs. And speaking of the union websites you mentioned among many things you mentioned someone you know if they're interested in a position learn as much as you can about what that position are i would think ioxy i believe on their website there's like actual definitions of crew positions what each one does but do you know of any other resources or places people should go that they can look up information i have a vocabulary of cinematic terms and I also have a vocabulary of, of um, positions on set. You could Google it. There are a lot of pamphlets out there. You can print them out. Some charge, some don't. Make your own. I made my own. I took from A, B, C because I wanted to make sure I didn't forget anything because it is for the kids. So there's. it's very, in today's world, it's very easy to get this information. You don't have to belong to anything. But I do recommend people, whatever city they live in, to uh become familiar with the film commission anything that has to do with film is to get yourself known and out there because networking is so important because you could be invited to see a film uh when i worked on commercials and i was invited by an ad to work on a feature and i not as a position just to observe and i said no i'll be an extra because when you're an extra then you could really see how they work if you're just there as a guest you don't learn and piggybacking on that a little bit i I'm an avid reader. I have a major book buying addiction. Like my wife will literally ban me from Barnes and Nobles. Um, so I, I take advantage of, of the library. So definitely join your local, you know, make sure you join your local public library. If you are in you know, college or university, take advantage of your college or university library. And nowadays there's more than books. You know, a lot of time, the online resources, I know where I live, we have through our public library, we have free access to LinkedIn learning. So you know what? If you want to be an editor, you can learn Adobe. You can learn DaVinci through that. Uh, you mentioned a DIT, a digital image technician. Look up what that is. Um, 
we joke that DITs are needed because nowadays cameras are really supercomputers that take video. And between all the formatting of the cards and the transferring, I mean, indie feature, I worked on a two-week shoot. We had three terabytes of film. We shot a 6K RAW, you know, just these massive files. So, Well, you know, in the commercial world, it's coloring. Everything has to match, has to look beautiful. And every TV looks different. So... You, a colorist is a very vital person on a commercial. And in film, I have been, I would say, a victim of critique because the color with the film and me being partially colorblind, you know, I always have to have someone else. Well, in, in advertising, one of the hardest things to shoot is cars and food because of their color. Food is interesting. We, we had a guest on previously who does a lot of food photography uh, that's on there. So interesting you say that. I want to find out, you know, you mentioned you have this vocabulary that you've done a lot. Where can our listeners find you? Are you on social media? I'm on social media. I'm on, well, Twitter. Who knows what's going to happen with Twitter with that. But I'm on this at uh, Quiet Set on Twitter. And uh, I'm on Facebook. Is my name Joan Gringer. And on that page, you'll find Quiet on the Set because there is another company or other companies who use that moniker quite on the set. So the best way to find the correct one is to go to my Facebook page and then you'll see in my profile probably this quiet on the set. And on that is all information in all of the arts. Because as a filmmaker, you have to know all of the arts about because you never know what's going to be in your film. You never know your character's background. And you, again, always have to learn. Joan, it has been great having you on the podcast today great information yeah I'm, I'm definitely i always go back and listen but there's a lot of stuff that i picked up that i definitely want to want to know take keep track of um we are happy to welcome you back to the podcast anytime in the future you want to come and continue sharing your knowledge uh sounds like you have a very interesting job that you do so so hopefully things pick up and it keep, keeps you busy as uh, i know iatsi just extended the covert protocols again recently hopefully soon those will get get lifted but i think even after the protocols are lifted there's still going to be some some things in place i think the zones will probably still be in use um you know it's the only thing constant is change always have to keep up to date yeah. with equipment with the people with the unions, it's always changing. So you really you really have to keep up with, and you have to pay your people. Don't ask them to work for free. Absolutely. Don't make these people slave. But Joan, thank you for inviting yeah, me. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Joan, it's been great. Thanks to you and best of luck. To our listeners, thank you again for joining us on the Cinema Pathway podcast today. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Our director is Miguel Miller. Our producer is Juliette Desan, along with associate producer Victor Ferreira and executive producer Freddie R. Rodriguez. This has been a presentation of Paradoxical Films. Please visit our website at www.paradoxicalfilms.com for more information about today's podcast. You can also email us at cinemapathway at paradoxicalfilms.com where you can send any comments, suggestions or feedback for future episodes be sure to subscribe to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to join us for our next episode where we will continue to talk about the craft of filmmaking right here on the Cinema Pathway podcast this is the Cinema Pathway podcast we'll see you next time lights out